The rest of this parak, as well as the entire next parak, discuss the various responsibilities as well as the rights of a husband towards his wife and of a wife towards her husband. This was also a focus of much of the previous parak, and we've already seen that a husband is obligated to support his wife. That is a responsibility of the husband towards his wife. And corresponding to this, the husband has the right to that which she earns and makes. Her maisiodayim. And we'll see later on in this perek what exactly she needs to make for him, what she needs to sew for him, and anything which she earns goes to him. The question is, what is in return for what? Does the Chachom say that she needs to work for him, and in return for that he is responsible to support her? Or does he have an obligation to support her, and in return for that, the Chachon said that that which she earns and makes go to him. So this question is discussed, and we are going to understand, according to the generally understood conclusion, that it begins with the obligation to support her, and in return for that, he has the right to that which she earns and makes. And because of that, the woman has the right to say to the husband, You know what? You don't need to support me. Don't support me. And then I won't need to give you anything that I earn and make. If she chooses to do so, she can say I'll support myself. She may do that. And then she can keep her maisiodayim for herself. Now, as well as this right and responsibility, which are in exchange for each other, we're going to learn later on in this perek that as well as supporting one's wife with the food and clothes which she needs, the Chachamim also obligated a husband to provide a certain amount of money for his wife each week. And in return for this, if a woman earns or makes more than she is obligated to, that also goes to the husband in return for this money which he gives her each week. And it follows, therefore, that she can do the same thing. She can say, don't give me that money and then the extra amount which I make above that which I'm obligated I'm going to keep for myself. Now Mishnah is discussing a case where the woman told her husband that you don't need to support me and I'm going to keep my maisiodayim. So once she says that the husband effectively has no rights over her maisiodayim and therefore hamakdish maisiodayim one who makes his wife's maisiodayim hekdish hekdish means something belonging to the base hamikdash so if he declares that his wife's maisiodayim, he's making hekdash. He's giving it over to the Beis HaMikdash. Now, it's forbidden for anybody to benefit from something belonging to the Beis HaMikdash. The question is, is this hekdash valid? Says the Mishnah, since he has no rights to her maisiodayim, she can continue making her maisiodayim, and eat, meaning she would support herself, because we're talking about a situation where her maisiodayim belonged to her, so that means she's supporting herself. But the point is, she can make maisiodayim, and that which she makes and earns, she can benefit from. And they belong to her, they don't belong to the Beis HaMikdash. Because since the husband has no rights to her maisiodayim, he has not got the power to make them hekdash. Now, when one's wife dies, he inherits her. And of course, part of that inheritance is her maisiodayim. That which she made and earned, he would inherit. Now, what happens in the case which we just described, once the woman dies? The Maisiodayim which he inherits, is that considered to be hekdash now? Because now he does have the power to make that into the Beis Hamikdash's property. And that was always going to be the case. That as soon as she dies, he would get the Maisiodayim. So the question is, when he made it hekdash originally, does that declaration have effect for once the Maisiodayim do become his? So the answer is, it's a Machlekes. And the Mishnah actually brings out this Machlekes in a slightly different case. 
where the husband does support her, so the Maisi Odaim do belong to him. However, he does not give her the money each week. She told him, don't give me that money, and the Maisi Odaim which I make above that which I'm obligated to make, I'll keep for myself. So as long as she's alive, he has no right to that extra amount which she makes. But when she dies, it becomes his. So how Maisar, if he made that extra amount which she makes, those Maisar Dayim, which he has not got any rights to as long as she is alive, if he makes that Hekdash, then upon his wife's death, Rabbi Meir Omer, Rabbi Meir says, Hekdash, those extra Maisar Dayim are Hekdash. Instead of him inheriting it, it goes straight to Hekdash. Since according to Rabbi Meir, one is able to make a Dovar Shaloi Bola Oilam into Hekdash. A Dovar Shaloi Bola Oilam refers to something which either does not yet exist. For example, if somebody were to say that the calf which my cow will give birth to, I am going to make Hekdash. So right now, that doesn't exist at all. That is one type of Dovar Shaloi Bola Oilam. Another type of Dovar Shaloi Bola Oilam is something which does not yet belong to me. It hasn't yet come to my world, as it were. And according to Rabbi Meir, one is able to make a Oilam into Hekdash. And even in the case of the Moisar, the extra amount which she makes, in such a case, it's not even guaranteed that she'll make that at all. She's not obligated to produce those Maisiodayim. It's the extra, and she might not even produce it. There was no guarantee at the time that he made it Hekdash that there would even be such a thing in the future. Even that, one is able to make Hekdash according to Rabbi Meir. However, Rabbi Echina Sandlar says that Chulin, it is considered to be not holy, it does not become Hekdash, and he would inherit it himself. Since according to Rabbi Echina Sandlar, one has not got the power to make something which doesn't yet exist, or is not yet his, into Hekdash. The following are the forms of work which a woman is obligated to do for her husband. There's a discussion whether this is the Maisiodayim which we've been talking about until now, or perhaps this is a separate obligation of how a woman is obligated to work for her husband. Be as it may, there are seven categories of work which a woman must do for her husband. Number one, Techenes, she needs to grind the wheat. And that really includes all of the processing of the wheat from after the harvest until it turns into flour. The oifan, she needs to bake bread for him, and wash clothes, cook, she needs to feed and nurse her child, she needs to make her husband's beds, and work with wool, weave things, as we will discuss later on in this parak. So this is the basic obligation of a woman for her husband. However, if the husband has enough money to hire workers and maids, then his wife does not need to do all of this, and therefore, if the woman brings in to the marriage a maid, or enough money, or property, which the husband can use to buy and hire a maid. And the truth is, it doesn't have to be that she provided the money for that. If the husband is already wealthy enough to provide for one maid, then the same would apply. She does not need to grind the wheat, she does not need to bake, and she does not need to wash his clothes, which are the three forms of work which require the most effort. Because the maid can do that. If she brings in two maids, then she does not need to cook. And she also does not need to nurse her child because the maid could do that. Shalish, if she brings in three maids, or enough money for three maids, she does not need to make his bed, and she doesn't need to work with the wool, and sew things, and weave things, etc. 
However, the regular tasks involved in taking care of the house and things like that, she would still be obligated to perform. But Araba, if she brings in four maids or enough property to provide for four maids, then Yeshezba Katedra, which literally means she can sit on some sort of throne or very nice chair, which important women would sit on. And that means that even these tasks which need to be done in the house, even that she's not obligated to do and she can leave it for the maids. Now the Gemara says that even in this case, she would still be obligated to perform more personal things like pouring him his drinks and perhaps helping him to wash his hands. Those are a couple of examples given by the Gemara. Since those are more personal and affectionate forms of work, she would still be obligated to do those. Rabbi Yezer says, Even if she brought in a hundred maids, he can still force her to work with wool, and he should force her to do this and sew and weave, because we don't want her to be left doing nothing, since doing nothing would lead her to inappropriateness and immorality, if she's left with nothing else to do. And Shimon Gamliel says, Even if one makes a vow which would prevent his wife from being able to work, he needs to divorce her and give her her kasuba because she cannot be left there without an option of working or doing anything since doing nothing leads one to go crazy. Not just immoral, but if she's totally bored, not able to do anything, then she will go utterly crazy. Now in general, it's it's impossible to make a vow to forbid somebody else to do something. I have the power to forbid myself to benefit from something, and I also have the power to forbid somebody else from benefiting from my property, since the property is in my domain. I have power over the property. However, to forbid somebody else from doing something which is not related to my own things, that's impossible. So the Gemara explains that he really makes a vow against the benefit which he derives from having relations with her. And the condition, he makes a condition, he says, if you do any work, then I am forbidding the relations upon me. Now, if a husband and wife are not able to have relations, then they need to get divorced. That's one of the things which are necessary in a marriage, the ability to have relations. So by saying it in that way, he is effectively forbidding her and preventing her from working. And for that alone, he needs to divorce her. And there are those who explain that the reason for the difference between Rabbi Yezer and Rabbi Shimon Gamliel is that in general, if a woman's not working, so she's got other things to do, she can find other things with which to occupy herself. So the concern is that she might end up doing immoral things because she hasn't got a lot of options that she can do. But in the case of Shimon Gamliel, we're talking about a husband who is sort of causing trouble for his wife. She's clearly not finding favor in his eyes, and he is trying to prevent her from doing things. So included in his vow would be other things which she would try and occupy herself with. And because of that, she would end up being prevented from doing anything, pretty much. And that's why there is a bigger danger that she would actually go crazy. One who makes a vow against having relations with his wife. He would forbid the benefit which he derives from the relations upon himself. And if he doesn't provide a time limit on this, then he is certainly obligated to divorce her, since one of the obligations of a husband towards his wife is the inosola yigros, is the Torah. He cannot withhold from having relations with her. The question is, what is the maximum amount of time which he can make this vow for and not be obligated to divorce her? It's two weeks, so if he makes the vow for any longer than that, either he needs to find a way of annulling the vow by going to a Talmud Chacham, who has the ability to annul a person's vow, and if he can't do that, then he will need to divorce her. Bishamai learned this from the longest time which the Torah forbids a husband and wife to have relations with each other. After a woman gives birth to a baby daughter, 
She is Tommy for a period of two weeks, during which it is forbidden for her to have relations with her husband. So we see that that is considered bearable, because the Torah itself forbids that for a period of two weeks. However, the maximum amount of time which he can forbid the relations for is one week, and then he will be obligated to divorce her, since it's not very common for somebody to give birth to a baby daughter. Whereas one might vow against having relations with his wife quite often. And we still learn their amount from a woman who is a nidah, which is a type of tumor which a woman would have for one week, during which it's forbidden for them to have relations. And since that is common, that occurs every month, the woman becomes a nidah for a week. So that is what the Torah considers to be bearable for the wife. So that is the maximum amount of time which he can forbid. Now we're going to see in the second half of this Mishnah that there are certain people who are obligated to have relations with their wife far less often than once a week. So anyway, they generally wouldn't have relations within that week. So why would he already be obligated to divorce her? Gmar explains with an interesting psychological answer that as long as it's not forbidden for them to have relations, so the woman is always thinking that possibly will have relations sooner than he is obligated. So it's true that in general we have only once a month, for example, because that's his obligation. But maybe he might choose to have relations sooner. And because of that, it's considered to be bearable for her, and she can take that for a longer time. But in a case where it's forbidden for them to have relations, she no longer sees any possibility for them to have relations sooner, and then it's already considered unbearable. So that's an interesting point which comes out of the Mishnah. Alright, Hatalmidim, which literally means students. This refers to people who learn Torah and don't work. They are allowed to go to another city in order to learn Torah without receiving the permission of their wife, for a maximum amount of 30 days. Whereas Hapoyalim workers, Shabbos Achas, they can only leave for maximum one week without the permission of their wife. Now, we bore the Pasuk earlier of Inosola Yigra, that he cannot withhold from the relations which he needs to have with his wife. Now, the word Inosa literally means her time. And we learn from there that there is a fixed period of time during which one must have relations with his wife. Meaning, how often he needs to have relations is fixed according to the Torah. However, the Torah didn't specify what exactly that time is. Rather, there's an interesting concept where the Torah left it for the Rabbonon to fix how often that is. But the obligation is mid Eiraisa. The Chachom just have the ability to define the extent of the obligation mid Eiraisa. So the Mishnah says, The Oino, the obligation to have relations with one's wife on a frequent basis, which is said in the Torah, is as follows. Hatayolin, unemployed men, the Chachom decided that they would be obligated every day to have relations with their wife. Hapalim, workers who work inside of that city, and they sleep at home every night, Steinbashabas, they are obligated to do so twice a week. Hachamorim, donkey drivers, who would travel to bring grain, but they wouldn't travel very far. They might be away for a couple of days, but still, Achasbashabas, they would certainly be home at least once a week, and that is their obligation to have relations with their wife once a week. Hagamorim, camel drivers who travel further distances to bring merchandise and products from faraway locations. Achasbashabas, he has the obligation to be home and have relations with his wife once every 30 days. And has upon him sailors who travel on very long voyages. Their obligation is once every six months. All of these amounts is the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. And again, these amounts were fixed by the Chachomim based on how much time one is available and is at home. 
but the obligation is still mid-eraisa. Mishazayna, Marietta Bailo, one who rebels against her husband by refusing to have relations with him. She is punished in the following way. We reduce from her kasuba seven dinar, seven zuz, each week. So the ksuba is either 200 or 100 zuz, unless they added a teisefes kasuba, the additional uh, added amount to the kasuba. But either way, every day, one zuz is deducted from her kasuba. So that equals seven zuz, which is the same as seven dinar each week. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda says, Shiva tarpa ikin. It's seven tarpa ikin, which is seven half dinarim. So it's half the amount. Rabbi Yehuda is more lenient on the woman. Until when does he deduct from the kasuba? until the amount corresponding to the kasuba has been reached, when there's nothing more to deduct, so he can't punish her in another way, and there would be no, no more kasuba, so he would need to divorce her, and she wouldn't be receiving any money from the kasuba. Rabbi Yossi says, He always continues to deduct, even once they've reached the stage where there's no more kasuba left, in case an inheritance will fall to her from another place, she might inherit something, and then go the Himen, or he's able to collect money from there if that property goes down in value such that in general the husband will be obligated to pay her for that deduction in value because of her rebellion she can be punished that she won't receive any compensation for the amount that that goes down in value and the point is if there's any other place where we can punish her so we would do that and he wouldn't yet be obligated to divorce her the al similarly one who rebels against his wife and refuses to have relations with her so now we're not talking about a case where he forbids himself of having relations. There we learned already he has to divorce her. Now we're just talking about a case where he refuses to have relations with her, he just doesn't do it. We add on to her kasuba three zuz each week. It's three half zuz. And the reason why there is a lower amount for a husband who refuses to have relations is because out of the husband and wife, the husband feels a bigger need and suffers more without having relations with his wife. So if she refuses to have relations, she's causing him more grief. And so she is punished more and we take away one zuz every day. Or one Tarpik according to Yehuda. But when the husband refuses to have relations, his wife suffers less, and therefore we only add one half dinar each day, or one half tarpik, which really should be three and a half dinar each week. However, it's only three dinar each week because it's forbidden to earn money on Shabbos. Since here we're adding on to Kasuba, we're not taking away, we're adding on, we're effectively paying her. And so we can't pay her for what happens on Shabbos, and therefore she only receives an extra zuz each day, which is added on to Kasuba from Sunday to Friday, and therefore that equals three zuz altogether.